Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Happy Sunday. I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. On the other end of the line, as he is every Sunday, former Ole Miss recruiting specialist Weldon Rodenberg. This is our LSU recap podcast. We'll get into all things Ole Miss LSU 31-17 win. Really, the weekend that was from what was just kind of a spectacle. We did have boots on the ground there. Weldon was there. I was not. I was home uh, for the first time in quite a while and was watching it on television. Uh, We'll get into a number of different things and what was really a dominating win for Ole Miss past the first, I would say, 12 minutes, maybe 18, depending on kind of uh, the offense getting going when you count Ole Miss turning the game. But what a what a win. And I think if there's um, a turning point in this season, I think you're kind of starting to see that with this team. And we'll get into that. Probably a lot of forward-thinking stuff and then the fastest-growing segment on American soil there at the tail end. But before we get to Weldon, I want to remind you the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, Glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. It's the peak of football season. You need to check these guys out. They've already put up a seven and one, a seven and oh, nine and one NFL week on the year, crushing it on NASCAR. We're up a bunch of units in NCAA football. I should say college football. This is not the video game last weekend. You need to check them out. They're going to have a picks package to fit your price range, whether that's you want to try it for the last couple of months of the season, where they're going to try a week long. You can go sports centric, all sports. They're going to have something that fits whatever you're thinking from a price perspective. You can even try a day pass. If you want to just try it out on a college football Saturday and test the waters, 10 bucks with the promo code Rippy, get 20% off. That's eight bucks by my math, but check them out. Skyboxsportspicks.com. Absolutely the best gambling handicapping website in the world. Excited to have them on board and you need to check them out because they are delivering you winners. I didn't even mention NASCAR. They've been up like 23 units over two weeks in NASCAR. Um, so if you know how to bet on NASCAR, I would, uh, urge you incredibly to use them as their NASCAR guy. I don't know anything about NASCAR. might have to get our guy back on and explain it to me again as a refresher, but check them out. Skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast also brought to you by LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Go see Greg. Absolutely the best place in Oxford to get meat. Y'all know the deal with LB's at this point. Oxford is so lucky to have it. Lane Train Special, six ounce bacon wrap filet. If you're a subscriber to the Rippy Wrights newsletter, you get a 16 ounce prime strip for 15 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage, plus a newsletter for me three to five times a week. I'll let you decide which one is better. Check them out, LB's University Avenue. It's absolutely the best place in Mississippi to get meat, fresh seafood, all kinds of sausages, brisket. They are the best place you could possibly imagine to kickstart your grilling weekend. I mean, hell, the 16 ounce prime strip special, $5 pack of sausage. That's an awesome way to consume the afternoon and night games. Hell, throw it up early morning. I don't know. I'm not in charge of all the adults here listening to this podcast. I'm just telling you that's an awesome deal. Check them out. LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. And what's up, man? You're back from Oxford. Uh, Probably a little fatigued, but podcasting through it anyway. What's up? Yes, definitely very tired. Uh, I landed around two o'clock here in Houston, drove back. Um, I'm sad. The weather in Oxford was much nicer. Unsurprisingly, it's back up to 90 here, but it was it was a great weekend. It was a ton of fun. Got to see a bunch of friends. Friday night was great. Uh, hanging out on the square up at a buddy's condo, watching the Newman uh, high school football game on Friday. 
Saturday was awesome. Grove was packed. Stadium was packed. LSU didn't travel as well as I thought, but, you know, it was more of an Ole Miss day anyway. Yeah, I had a great time. I'm, I'm definitely very tired. I'm for sure you can hear it in my voice a little bit. <laughs> That's probably, you know, you mentioned LSU not traveling as well. That's probably even more uh, indicative of how just how, um, I guess, electric it was the entire weekend we can get to the stadium part of it in a second, just from an Ole Miss perspective, because there's, there's a couple weekends. So I texted a couple of my buddies that were there and my dad. And when we do these things, and honestly, I haven't had to send like texts like this in a while, there's always reference points. Like in terms of asking about the crowd. So what's it like up there this weekend? And the reference points are usually Bama, Alabama, 14, Texas, 2012, LSU, 2003, and maybe one or two others mixed in. And uh, really the consensus response I got from just the Oxford, the square, of course, the game itself was it's up there with all of them. Uh, my dad had been to pretty much all of those. He missed Alabama in 14 for some golf deal, but he said it's the most people he'd ever seen around town. It was a, just absolute zoo trying to get in, get around um, in a positive way, I guess, but just was it, Everything, I guess, you remember from college or pre-college, whatever other big weekends you'd been involved with, it seemed like it was pretty much up there with all of it. Yeah, it was definitely up there with all of it. I think it's so different, though, when you're doing that deal as a student versus not a student. Because when you're a student, I mean, these game days are like everything. You know, you're setting up right. the tailgates. Like, you've been partying for three nights in a row already. So, the game is like, you know, what's leading up to it. For me, it was visiting out of town, and you're kind of – you're tailgating with uh, – I went to the New Orleans tent with a bunch of my friends there, and it's just a little different of an atmosphere, so you probably don't feel it as much. Um, I, I do not think this was as big as 2014 Bama, and I can say that just from a fact, just the differences in the Grove and in the stadium. I mean, we had to go in like two and a half hours early for right. – I mean, just to get a seat for that game. And I think that is probably more indicative of LSU not being very good this year than Ole Miss not putting up a good atmosphere. But it was it was wild. The stadium was pretty loud, um, louder than it has been recently. And uh, they played awesome. The whole weekend was great. And thank God it was a quick one because I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm home. Yeah, for those that have been, been around the block a while and been going to Ole Miss games for quite a while, I still think Texas 2012 was the most people what, I'd ever yeah. seen. Cramming that's what everyone season. says. That, a, everyone always runs up year, Texas. And Texas wasn't yeah. even that good, but it was just the two – I hate using this term, but party schools, brands coming together, like road destination road trip for Texas people. Like Ole Miss was 3-0 to their credit. They got absolutely stomped in kind of the tail end of Mac Brown. But, yeah, I, I still contend – um, that that was probably the most people I've ever seen in the city. Uh, I mean, you had McConaughey written out restaurants on the square. Like that was just kind of a, an event, not necessarily the game being that big, but I, th I still think that tops it. Yeah. I mean, 14, like, I don't know why it was this case, why this was the case, but I mean, I don't even know if you remember, but like Woody Harrelson was in town. Yeah. Zach Efron was in town. Katy Perry. Like there was a, it was just a weird collection of people and it just seemed like a little bit bigger I guess but this was a a different kind of day I guess you could say where the, the team was the focus and not as much the fans like the Bama game you know with game day and everything it's just kind of a more of a an event I guess you could say but this it was awesome I'm, I'm really really happy I went um the bar covers are still bullshit but 
Um, and I will never, ever not say that, but it was a ton of fun. I, you know, uh, I texted our buddy Mayo about the, when I was asking him just what the week was like. He's like, if this is any indication, you couldn't like there was not a cover less than 60 after about, you know, a little past dinner time on Friday night. I was like, love to hear it, hate to pay it type of deal. But that's when you know it's a big weekend. I, I agree. <laughs> not a big fan of paying covers. As far as the game itself and kind of the spectacle that was, it was a sellout or they announced it a sellout. You mentioned LSU not traveling as well, but it's it, it looks cool on TV from everyone who in red. They did the Manning deal at halftime for a place. And I wrote about this a little bit in Friday's night's newsletter. I guess I sent that late Friday night, early Saturday morning. Ole Miss athletic department wise, particularly, but this can kind of go for the whole school has endured its share of criticism at times for not necessarily being the most forward thinking and capitalizing on marketing opportunities. But you as someone who worked in recruiting and at its core, you know, recruiting is marketing in a lot of ways. Uh, they they nailed this one, it seemed like. The entire Manning weekend, uh, of course, it was absolutely no accident that Arch was there visiting, but just the entire retiring Eli's jersey kind of making the Manning pitch, I guess, to the next generation and that just becoming sure. an entire event. I thought they nailed everything, checked every single box. I did see, I guess, minor right there maybe was an opportunity to do some throwback uniforms where you wear the old Eli red with the blue pin, like the numbers that which, are trimmed. Which they blue. should have. Yes, or I know, because I'm not a huge me. powder blue fan, but if that's what you're coming away is in the if is the only thing in the negative column from the weekend in terms of like how the school handled everything, <laughs> you're probably doing pretty well. I, just your thoughts on that as someone who worked in recruiting, I guess the best way to kind of throw this question at you is, does that kind of stuff make a difference to a kid where it's a prized recruit? It's a little unique, I know, because it's Arts Manning, but having some sort of spectacle like that and him and hell, whoever else was there being in attendance, how much of a difference does stuff like that make? Because I was always told that, hey, a kid coming and watching a team win or lose in one game is not really doing shit, but just the spectacle of everything, does that make a difference with kids? It can. I mean, you always want to have a great atmosphere. Um, that's so, so big. And they did a great job. They had the, the basketball jam thing on the square. So that gives you another thing to do with kids, which can honestly, I know this sounds weird. It's kind of tough to figure out what to do with that many kids, um, especially in Oxford. But uh, I think they go up to the graduate hotel and they've been great um, handling the team and the basketball was awesome. And then the game day at two 30 is so great for everybody you're not sitting around with the recruits all day like they're not sitting around all day you can only talk about so much right you know especially on a game day when the coaches are being prepared or trying to prepare for the game and everything um so it's awesome yeah it's a big deal and the retiring eli thing that won't really have an effect on that many kids except for i guess maybe arch um but yeah it was a great atmosphere that always helps um there's always a term in in recruiting we used to use which was like winning helps and losing doesn't hurt you can always spin losing, but winning always helps. And I think that's probably the most important thing. But on a small topic, I really was happy that when they retired Eli's jersey, it was just him and his immediate family out there with and Archie and Olivia out there. But I'm really happy they didn't bring Arch out there because that would have taken the students taken that moment away from Eli when it's just not even it's not about Arch at all. And um, so that was cool. It was awesome. And um, they did a great job with everything. Yeah, I know. I was hoping to maybe I had a topic penciled in that I think the topic was, does Ole Miss retiring number 10 hurt their chances with the arch because he can't wear 10? So. <laughs> no. 
be worse 16. Tune in next on uh, on Get Up. <laughs> yeah. No, but I thought it's I, I think you're right. And I thought it was cool. And I never thought about that before. Last thing before we get into the game, you mentioned something about game day where the coaches are preparing. If it is a night game, that really does kind of fall on you guys to just occupy these kids all day, right? Because you yes. mentioned the graduate thing, you can kind of have an event on Friday night. You mentioned square jam, stuff like that, have being helpful to do. I've never thought about it from that sense. They are just kind of hanging around. What is like when you're entertaining a bunch of kids for the weekend, let's say it's a 6 p.m. game. What is that like? Like, what are you having to how are you trying to kill time with those kids? Well, you're just begging them to follow the schedule we give them. So if it's a six o'clock game, usually we say show up around like 1.30 or two. Like, don't come show up at 8 a.m. on a Saturday if the game's at six o'clock. Cause like we're not even we're just if you're if you're an important recruit, yeah, we'll open the doors for you. But people aren't even there yet. So no one's at the facility from 8 a.m. You know, if the game's at six, you know, the team, I think the team stays in Oxford now instead of Tupelo, but they used to drive in from Tupelo. So some of the coaches wouldn't be there. We would shuttle some kids to the Grove and check it out. Um, maybe if they haven't seen some of the facilities before, you do a few tours here and there, but there's not a whole lot to do. And then the coaches will come into the offices or when they, once they get to the facility and they'll talk with all the kids and the head coach will meet with a select group of kids um, before the game. And, Hopefully, if the recruits stay, they'll meet again after the game sometimes. And when they win, that's it's great, you know, atmosphere in the facility and everyone's happy. So that makes things much better. Um, but it's not that much fun. It was not the most fun game day experience having to deal with a bunch of kids and their family members as well. But it's cool. So, right. So I guess getting into the game, it was. We talked about the importance of Ole Miss getting off to a fast start because of all the factors at play, right? LSU playing for a guy that is allowed to coach out the season, but they reportedly cannot stand. Um, the flip side of it, LSU was kind of pretty good on script coming into this game to start the year, and that really held true in this game. The first 15 to 18 minutes of this game were really poor by Ole Miss. They had you know penalties that thwarted a couple offensive drives. They start out with two punts. LSU marches it right down the field on their opening drive and scores a touchdown. I wasn't necessarily like Ole Miss defense is not going to get the benefit of the doubt because of the kind of the history there, particularly over the last four or five years or so. But even on that first drive, LSU did hit Ole Miss with a couple of running plays that were clearly something that they two of them were clearly something they'd done last week at Florida. I'm not smart enough to know the terminology, but where they pulled both two guys from the right side of the line of scrimmage and they got over there pretty quick and they busted Ole Miss off the left side, but whatever point being there's three to four running concepts. They tried on the first drive. They got right down the field. Even after that first drive, I was like, I don't think they're necessarily getting killed because Sam Williams absolutely destroyed Max Johnson where he just throws like a lollipop up in the air to whomever that was that caught it. How that pass was completed is still beyond me because it wasn't the classic try to get out of the way because it's underthrown. You don't want the PI call. It just fell in the kid's lap. I don't know how that wasn't defended, but that took up 40-something, 50-something yards of that drive. And while the red zone defense on that particular drive wasn't great, I wasn't sitting there thinking, oh, this isn't going to be good for Ole Miss. The second drive, when they continued to run the football you know, pretty much at will, there was a little bit more resistance. I was thinking, oh, this might not end well. And then really after that, Ole Miss just kind of kicked their ass. I think LSU, they finished, they were had 21 rushes for 71 yards at halftime, and they finished the game with 77 rushing yards. So 
Ole Miss really bottled them up after the first two drives. I would love to go back and tally up how much they had the first two drives, but just you were there, you were in the stadium. What was your general impression of kind of how the first 15 minutes of that game went? Because everything that kind of could have gone wrong for Ole Miss to allow LSU to hang around that game, they did it. And it was weird that it did not end up mattering at all. Yeah, they, I mean, we talked about it on Thursday, but LSU always starts fast. I mean, if Jake Peets could just, coaches script plays and that's it for a football game he'd make a lot of money um but that's that fourth down stop changed everything it changed the stadium it changed LSU's team Ole Miss's team horrible play call I I I get you can't really win games with field goals especially against Ole Miss but at that point it's like go up two possessions and you're, you're rocking that Ole Miss hasn't done anything yet but once that happened and then the running game opened up, those guys were tired. I think one of their defensive linemen got hurt early. So they were already hurt, and then they got more hurt, and they just ended up punishing them just over and over again. They're not even running overly difficult run schemes. They're just beating them up, which is crazy. I mean, I didn't even know Ben Brown didn't play. I couldn't – I was trying to see who was out there, but I know Bryce Ramsey ended up at center for a little bit, and they're like third or – string guys and they're just whipping LSU from that drive on for the rest of the game. I mean, the score doesn't really indicate how badly Ole Miss beat them because if Snoop gets in, it's 38 to 10. Right. Who knows? I mean, it could have even gotten worse, but they played a hell of a game and they did Levy and Kiffin, they do it again where they just stick with the game plan. What they're going to do, they do not adjust. They do not get scared. They run the football because that's what they do when they see they need to. And especially with Matt, clearly was more hurt than even I thought he was. He wasn't going to run it much. So it was huge for them to keep doing that and keep getting getting on a roll with it. I'm glad you brought up the goal line stop because that definitely changed the course of the game and really the, the feel of the game. And I just wrote down what happened on each play as I was going back and watching this again today. First play on that goal line stop, I think they had the ball around the four. Uh, they actually had a pretty decent, uh, I don't know if it's play call or design, but there was a hole there, and Chance Campbell really just kind of closed that within about a split second and blew the running back up. So then they're second down, and they're running the football again, and you get they got a little bit of a push, and they got inside the five, down to all, pretty much the two, I guess, somewhere around the two- or three-yard line. But Otis Reese made a pretty good play, and Jamon Gordon and Ashanti Sistrunk kind of helped him follow it up, where in years past, I mean, how many times have you seen Ole Miss, even when they meet someone a yard or two after the line of scrimmage, the guy falls forward for six more, and it's a touchdown. They had a pretty good play there, and then they stuffed another run with Isaiah Iton and Otis Reese again, and pretty much outside of Ashanti Sistrunk, those are all quote-unquote newcomers. I know Reese was there last year, but he didn't really play much of the season. What, he got two games? I can't remember when he came back. He has gone for much of the year. That's Chance Campbell and Otis Reese making good plays. And then, of course, you had the Tashim Johnson interception, where it was a little bit unfortunate that they ended up having to place the ball in the one. But that yeah. was a huge goal on stand with kind of the reinforcements that you hoped. I thought – We'll get to this in a minute, but the JUCO kids, I haven't seen the snap counts. They'll come out tomorrow, but they played a lot more guys and had a some semblance of a rotation on the defensive line, I noticed, for the first time in quite a while. And so I just thought that as we kind of get – I'm sure we'll talk about more in this podcast about, I guess, the turning point for this defense and kind of maybe how they're coming along as they remain healthy. But I just thought it was interesting that on those three plays and then you get the Tashim Johnson pick, that's pretty much all newcomers other than Sistrunk that were involved in all three of those plays. That's got to be a positive sign. It is. I mean, it's just roster management. You just got to fill holes where you can. And now the portal, I mean, they've done such a great job, which is 
it's funny because LSU has done such a bad job in the portal evaluating some of the guys they brought in, whereas Ole Miss has done a phenomenal job. I mean, all these guys have been really key contributors. Even Pearson, you know, he played and had a few catches today, and, like, that's the guy's playing for you. Some of the LSU guys, they, they got the Mike Jones guy from Clemson, can't even see the field. The Nickel State DB doesn't see the field. So now managing your rosters, you have to be able to evaluate high school kids really well, especially at Ole Miss and transfer guys very well. Because we've we mentioned this before, but stat pumpers doesn't necessarily mean you're a good football player. And we'll get to Demond Clark. I have to say sorry to him. But um, they've done a great job, you know, just mixing and matching guys. They're getting – they're not getting more depth, but they're just saying we have to play more people. Yes, that's a great so way to put that. It's not – they aren't building anything. Like, you can't build depth. It's either you have it or you don't. And some of these guys that ended up playing stepped up, and I think it makes everyone more fresh uh, to play for the rest of the game. And just to add a little bit more color to it, I did a terrible job of doing the yardage markers there when describing the fourth down stop. Starts at the that's six. It. Chance Campbell blows it up for no gain. The Tyron Davis price run where I was talking about how Otis Reese held the guy up pretty well. And then the other two came, finished him off. The guy gets four yards to the two. Uh, it was price yeah. again. And then they rent price for a loss of one. And that put it fourth down from the three yard line. So that really kind of changed the game. And then Ole Miss goes down and they're still not able to get a touchdown. They ended up with a, uh, with, a Caden Costa field goal, which shout out to that kid. He's continually, I know there was a little bit of shakiness and I can't even remember the game at this point, but he's been pretty solid uh, from that point on. That makes it to seven to three. And then LSU never really sustained a drive again after that. They got, I think, 37 or 38 yards on the next drive where they missed the long field goal and Ole Miss takes advantage and he gets the touchdown. But after that, you're talking three plays, two yards uh, into the half. So three plays, negative three yards three plays and a fumble, three plays and a punt, and five plays and a fumble, 14 plays for 40 yards and a field goal, and then the trash touchdown at the end. Ole Miss defense really never gave up much of a sustained drive after that point. And I know you were at the game, and it's a little harder to see sometimes, but I know you went back and watched part of it. It's Where are we at, do you think, with this Ole Miss defense? It's another sample size with Jake Springer back. They've been good against the run twice. And Tennessee had been good running the ball all year. LSU had been terrible but had a terrific day last week. How do you yeah. how do you gauge this defense as is with Jake Springer? Because after, you know, the first 12 offensive snaps for LSU in this game, 14-ish, somewhere in that neighborhood, they really couldn't do anything against the run. And it was a mix of Springer, uh, I thought – both the linebackers, and they played a lot more linebackers in this game, which we'll get to in a minute, were good. And then I thought the defensive line might have been the story of this game. How do you kind of evaluate where they're at from stopping the run? Because that's been such an issue for not only this year, but the last three to four. Yeah, I mean, I was listening to the uh, the LSU post game. I think T-Bob, Bear, and Moscona, they had the stat that LSU had 24 total yards in the second quarter and 42 total yards in the third quarter. That's wow, insane. And I think it was total yards. I don't think it's just rushing yards. I mean, it was actually total yards. No, I, I think you're definitely right because they only had 77 for the game and six of this. Uh, they only had six in the second half talking about the ground. So I think that's exactly right. Yeah. And LSU, they had a kind of a breakthrough on what they thought on their scheme last week against Florida. And they were just counter, counter, counter. I mean, they ran the counter for like 13 times for 200 yards. And they came into today and try to do the same thing and Ole Miss watches film like most teams do and they didn't have a response for when it stopped working. Sam Williams 
played awesome against the run, which is something I've said he has struggled against. Called your shot there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Campbell and Robinson have been awesome. Even Momo got in there when they needed to mix some people in and were great. Springer is just a a hellcat off the edge. Every time they need to kind of bring him up and make it like a five down with with him and Reese on the outside. I mean, they were just spilling everything, and they had no success with it. And they did not adjust at all, which is funny because the opening drive, Johnson was in a rhythm. He looked, looked, was looking really good. And then they were doing what Les Miles used to do, which is they run the ball on first and second down. And then you're, if you can't run the ball, it's third and long. And then we've mentioned multiple times when Sam William plays against a offensive lineman, that's not good. He destroys him. <laughs> and he and Cedric Johnson destroyed their tackles um who just haven't played well all season and that was kind of what happened it just happened over and over and over again and Pete's didn't adjust and then you're giving the Ole Miss offense no pressure I mean Kiffin there were times where he would go for it and he did this against Indiana too the book probably tells him to go for it. the analytics does and he's like my defense is playing well I don't have to here and that's, that's when you know you're about to lose to Ole Miss when they don't go for it on fourth down because they know they're confident and what the defense is doing, that's a bad sign for the other team. And they did that multiple times yesterday, which was pretty surprising. They played really, really, really well. I'm glad you brought that up because when they didn't step on their necks, uh, they were up like 31-7 or 24-7, to and it was like the fourth and two from midfield in the second half. They didn't punt. I kind of fired off some smart-ass tweet about the analytics book, and then I got a bunch of uh, win probability heroes uh, responding to me, explaining how that was the right call, which is not really my point at all. But yeah. I thought of what you talked about from a previous show. Talk, like When we were talking about the book, I think it was the post-Alabama podcast where you mentioned it's not always strictly by the book. It's a mix of that and feel. And I think you had brought up that Indiana example where, of course, there are probably a couple of times in that game where the book tells you to go for it or the numbers do. But Kiffin said, you know, my defense is playing pretty well. Like, I'm just going to punt it, go off a little bit of the feel of the game. That has to be like, one of the more, if you're watching the game as a fan or involved, like whether you're coaching, playing, whatever, when you're trusting your defense where you're not going for it on fourth and three at midfield, that's that's about as confident as you can get completely as a football team, I feel like, with this version of Ole Miss, just because you know what the offense is going to be. But if you're actually confident in giving the ball back to the other team because you think the defense can get a stop, that's that's a different mindset than Kiffin and the coaching staff, particularly on the offensive side, have – had to have to this point, if that makes any sense at all, which I imagine will allow them to continue to be patient in the play calling and also probably not have to be so hyper-aggressive all the time. Exactly. It just changes the way they feel the game. And it's a game-by-game thing. I mean, Arkansas and Alabama, they wanted to go for it. I will even say I think he was coaching a little bit on tilt in the Alabama game, going for it so many times, but I don't disagree with it ever because that's just what they do. But when you can do that and you can do it consistently and against Auburn next week, they're going to have to probably have that same mindset of we, our defense has to step up. We can't force this game on offense because that team's pretty good. Um, so, yeah, it's awesome for them. And it's it's really important for them to have that kind of mindset that they don't have to get away from the offensive plan, don't get away from the defensive plan, and don't have to force things. Hey, how common is it in your – assessment of just watching football or being involved in a staff to where one guy on the defensive side of the ball changes so much about what you do, because it seems very evident at this point 
that Jake Springer has made a huge difference in not only the way the defense plays, but in how the defense is called. Is that pretty common? Like, kind of give me a feel of just, is that a product of Ole Miss just not having a ton of depth and one guy being that important? Or is that somewhat common across football? I feel like you see it more on offense than okay. you do on defense where you got this one guy like last year, if Elijah Moore was out, you know that game's being called differently. Like everything is different. Um, but on defense, at least since I've been there, well, unfortunately, defenses have been pretty terrible. So you haven't really had to worry about one player too much. But it's clear – I think it's more clear that Durkin calls the games much differently with Springer there. I, I don't even know if the defense is – they're ton, they're a ton better with him on the field, but I don't even know if it's just Springer. I think they now have so much more confidence in the rest of the DVs where you have Otis playing the position they want him to be playing. That's where I was going right with now. this. Dude, your yeah. Otis Reese thing when y'all brought him there versus like why it's more optimal where he's playing now versus where he was, because that's a guy that took some criticism playing out of position while Springer was out. Right. And I mean, that's just he he shouldn't be a guy that's playing man on people too often. He's more of a Jamal Adams type where you don't really want him guarding a receiver ever because it's not going to go well. But you want him in the box and around the ball. And with Springer there, he can do a little bit more of both. So they both are in a better position and the defense in a whole and the way Durkin is more confident calling some of these stunts and blitzes um, instead of just rushing three. It's clear that it's kind of coming together. I don't know if they're a elite defense. I don't even know if they're a good defense, but they are clearly can now at least sometimes dictate terms, which is huge. Yeah, they really have. That was probably the difference. Like That's something we had not seen all year. Tennessee, they got enough stops. They played pretty well. But wouldn't you say this is the first time, I like the way you put that, this is the first time they've actually kind of dictated the terms of a game. Because yeah. – they got enough stops against Tennessee, right? They were on the field for a decent amount of plays, not anything ridiculous like it was at Arkansas, but you didn't feel like they were dictating what Tennessee was going to do offensively. Tennessee ran the ball with enough success to where they could kind of stick with it, but they weren't gashing Ole Miss. Whereas in this game, Ole Miss completely took away LSU's ability to run the football and were really dictating what LSU was able to do. I feel like it's been a while since an Ole Miss defense has done that against an opponent with the pulse. Right. I think it also comes back to the opponent a little bit. Tennessee with Hypel, I mean, they have a system, an offensive game plan that they run and they're going to run it. So that they're not going to really feel the pressure from an Ole Miss defense, especially when they're at home. But LSU and Pete's, they don't even have a system. They don't even know what they do. And it's pretty clear. It seems once, bad. And they just, it's clear because every second half, that team ends up kind of folding, not quitting, but just. The, the game plan doesn't end up working. They go so slow. They don't know what they're doing. So you can give the Ole Miss defense rest during a game and not be able to block it, it just it, and not have a quarterback. Johnson, it's not his fault. He, he, I think he's actually a pretty good player. Not a great quarterback, but he's not bad, but he's not very mobile. So now you give them that extra benefit, not having to worry about him running around all the time. It, it's just it makes life a lot easier for Ole Miss. And the, I thought the last three minutes of the half were pretty important in swaying this game. Uh, that's stating the obvious there. But what am I talking about in the actual sense of it? It is Ole Miss goes down and kicks the field goal, the drive stalls. They had a bunch of really just 
frustrating and head scratching penalties to start this game, particularly on the offensive side of the football. Like yeah, I'll we'll, give Otis we'll Reese the pass on the PI. That's one last defensive thing before we get to it. I wanted to get to that because some people I watched were watching the game with were frustrated by it. How hard is it for the guy to stop when his head's not turned? Uh, when the ball's underthrown, it seems just kind of a product of okay. Like I just shrugged my shoulders and was like, okay, that sucks. But what are you going to do? Because that seems like physically almost impossible to do. Kind of give me your, I guess, you know, physical traits, whatever the case may be, breakdown of how hard that is to get out of the way when the ball's underthrown and you can't see it. Because Reese I mean, clearly it's, it's, did not know it was underthrown. Yeah, he didn't know it was underthrown. His head's turned probably because he's man on the guy. The guy's got to beat by at least a yard or two. So you can't just slow down because you're still running. You assume that he's going to throw the correct ball. Um, ball skills is not like when you talk about DB and talk about ball skills, it's about like ball recognition, not like actually being able to catch the football. And some guys have it, some guys don't. And I'm not saying Otis doesn't have it, but it's incredibly difficult to, in the middle of a play, ball is underthrown to stop your, your running, your sprint, turn around, locate the ball, catch the ball, or even knock it down. I mean, it's hard and it's unfortunate, but the penalties, we can talk about it now or we can talk about it later. It's up to you, but that is going to lose this team a football game yes. at some point. You're right. You're exactly right. Whether it's, it's Auburn, I mean, there's only two candidates left. Let's be honest. It'll lose them the Auburn and the AM game at some point. Because I guess it could have that's true. I, I was yeah. about to go there. I was thinking, that actually, you have, we're, they're averaging like 10 to 12 penalties a game for like over 100 yards. That will lose you a game at some point. And fortunately, it didn't lose them this one, but it's coming. It's going to come soon. And they're always early. It's like we can't never get in a rhythm, at least these past few games, because there's so many penalties, offensive line penalties, holding penalties. It just, it's all, it's everything. They're, they're actually inconsistent with their penalties because. It's they're going through the whole book on pass interference, holding too many men on the field, false starts. It's impressive to an extent how uh, the varieties that they come in, but it's it's going to lose in the game at some point. Agree. I mean, it really is kind of running the gamut of whatever the like across the board of what the penalties are. If you're looking for a common thread offensively, I guess you could say it's probably on the offensive line, but that's also not fair because where do the majority of your penalties come on offense anyway? The offensive line. And you had a Drummond false start mixed in where he doesn't get set coming in motion. It really just is a very random comedy of errors early in the game. They do have to get that short up. I, I could not agree more on that. But kind of honing it back in where before we'll probably transition a little bit to offense. I thought the last three minutes of the half were pretty, pretty crucial. Ole Miss gets the field goal. They finally get on the board. Of course, they would have liked to have finished the drive off. But 13 plays, 74 yards. They at least sustained something. Uh, and that drive was thwarted by a Matt Corral. But that was an intention. That was the intentional grounding. And then he takes a sack and they go perish to not nowhere or whatever the case may be. You get on the board. LSU starts driving it again. There's one productive run. You had, there wasn't really a huge play on this drive. This was the Otis Reese penalty drive, but they get across midfield and then Ole Miss stuffs to Tyron Davis price run then Max Johnson incomplete, and then they got a ton of pressure on him, and he had the incomplete pass to the tight end, and they missed the long field goal. To Ole Miss's credit, they take it straight down the field, um, and this was another one that had a penalty. I think you had a Jordan Rhodes holding that negated a Jerry on Ely touchdown, so that takes it from converting a third and nine to a touchdown to a third and 19 to where Jerry on Ely, uh, to Kiffin's credit, they clearly saw something with this because they ran it to him again. He picks up a third and 19 on the ground all the way down to the two, Go on was thing wasn't great, but they eventually get it in on the nice little short pass to Casey Kelly. That 
turns it to 10 to seven. And now you're sitting there thinking, okay, like if this defense is starting to play well, if they can get one more stop here, you can really kind of brace, break LSU spirits. Cause at that time I'm thinking a stop and a score, that means LSU expended a lot of energy and didn't really play terribly to walk into halftime being down 17 to seven. Like to me, that had to be pretty demoralizing. And to the defense's credit, they get the stop right before halftime. I might have had this one written down. I can't remember what it was, but they had a pressure. They had a couple of pressures and a stopped run. And then Ole Miss goes back down on the field. I guess the best place to start offensively is Ole Miss used the running backs. We talked about this yesterday on the postgame show. I thought they played the perfect notes with the running backs. All three of them played an important role in a different way. And I guess if you're kind of showing the tutorial tape to how to use each guy in their different skill sets, yesterday seemed to be like a clinic because Ely made a difference. Parrish was important and Snoop Connor was just kind of what he always is. What did you think of how they played? Yeah, they, they all played great, and I think that's exactly right. They they used them exactly where you should use them. I, they they subbed a lot more than they have um, on offense for really any game this year, and I think it was a great idea. I don't think they had to go that fast for this game, um, just the way the LSU defense has been playing. Um, but Snoop was more in, and Parrish went around the goal line. Ely's kind of in the midfield guy. They ran on third and long like three or four times and got it almost every time. And they're really – they're running that play because that's what the numbers say just from the defensively. But it's really just to set you up for a better fourth down conversion. But if you get it on third down, that's just icing on the cake, and that's what they were doing. And they LSU just never adjusted, not once. Didn't even think about it. And that was crazy to me. Um, but they did – they all played well. Ely, you just – forget how fast he is and he played very confident and he said after the game he felt better and wanted to just kind of go out there and play like he always used to instead of being so I don't even know what he was thinking he was but it just was not the same guy that we've seen and he had a great game today and they all did yeah that's uh that's I'm glad you went there because that's exactly where I was going next it, Kiffin had an interesting quote after the game when he was asked about Jerry on Ely he said something to the effect of Look, we told him earlier in the week, hey, man, you're a speed back and you're not playing like one. And I think one of the things he pointed to was there's a lot of times where Ely runs and his, he gets his feet stopped is what the term Kiffin used. And that really negates a large portion of what makes Jerry on Ely good. And the run call on third and 19, as you mentioned, that's what the numbers say. But of course, realistically, on a third and 19, when you're calling a run, you're just hoping you get a decent chunk of yardage and set up for a manageable fourth down. But Kiffin said after the game, like I said on the headset to Jeff, like we said simultaneously, that's what he's supposed to look like. When you have a speed back like that and you have a numbers advantage, that's exactly what it's supposed to look like. It seemed like you know, the thing I the note I had written down from immediately during the game was Jerry Neely looks like he's running differently. I guess that's what that is. What is Kiffin kind of getting at from you're a speed back, stop stopping your feet beyond the obvious of what the actual term means? Yeah. Do you remember the play, the fourth down option play against Alabama where Ely tried to cut back yeah. and got stopped when it was fourth and one? And Kiffin brought it up in the post the post game. He's like, Ely tried to cut back for some reason, like basically to kind of took a shot at him. The reason he's saying that is because that, that play is designed to get to the sideline. And when you're the fastest player on the field, th don't cut back. If it's schemed up correctly, which it kind of was, you're going to beat the linebacker for Alabama to the sideline, and you're going to get one to two yards. Ely is trying to cut too much, trying to stop his feet. 
go through people when the reality he needs to just find an open space and sprint and run and get chunks. Don't have to make people miss cut all that kind of stuff. Just one cut and go, because when you're faster than everybody, he's, he knows how big he is. He's not going to be able to run over guys in the sec. He's got to be able to beat him with his speed. And that's what he was talking about. And that's what Ely definitely did today or yesterday. And so that my next question on this was how, do you, so when Ole Miss has a third and long, whether it's third and nine plus, do you want Ely on the field for all of those because of what he can do in the passing game out of the backfield? But that seems like a real threat if you drop a bunch of guys and you leave parts of that intermediate part of the field open, whether it's inside or outside the box. That seems like a real threat. Look, I know they're not going to expect to convert third and 19s on the ground a lot, but I guess you could probably see what I'm getting at is, do you think they'll have him on the field for most third and longs? Maybe they already have, and it's something I just hadn't noticed, but that seems like a real weapon on a third and 12 when you have a guy that can pop something if you don't have enough guys committed to stopping the run, even in an obvious passing situation. Yeah, I think you'll see him more on those third and longs, not just because it was successful against LSU, sure. but when you're, in, when you're in third and 15, 16, you're not going at warp speed anymore. Because the play you probably had for the next play is, is out, the, out the building now because it's third and 16. You get the package on there that you want, the players, the personnel on there that you want for third and 16. And you still might just run an inside zone and pray you get six to 10 yards. But I think having him out there as a pass catcher as well at least opens up some different things. I mean, that's never a place you want to be. But if you have another guy out there they have to worry about from running and passing, that's definitely helpful. We talked about the still on. Thursday or Friday in the preview, we talked about maybe a little bit of a silver lining of Ole Miss having so many injuries offensively is that all three running backs are healthy and that they were really going to have to lean on them. And I think that's exactly what happened. So Ole Miss scores, they go up seven to 10. The defense gets an immediate stop where they go stop the run and then two pressures on Max Johnson. And then, so they're forcing an immediate punt and then Ole Miss goes right back down the field and scores nine plays, 80 yards in two minutes. I think there was a long – yeah, there was a long drum and over the middle pass there. Yeah, yeah. And then you had a snoop run as well that I think really got the drive going. Um, and then two plays prior to the score, I think what Matt Corral runs in from three yards out on an option. Parrish got him down there. You had a Miles Battle sighting. He catches a pass wide the hell open for 18 yards down the sideline. I made a note, and I may have put this out on Twitter. I, I can't remember, to be honest. I think that, to me, is indicative of how they feel about their receiving core at this current moment past Sanders and Drummond because you even saw a J.J. Henry sighting. He was only – I don't yeah. know how many total plays he was on the field. They threw one deep ball to him down the sideline, and that was the – who the hell is 86 moment? Cause we hadn't seen him. Yet this year, right? I'm looking it up block. and I was like, who the hell is this guy? And then I was like, Oh, that's JJ Henry. So you saw that and you saw a miles battle. Uh, Brad Nestor was already declare him a former soon to be defensive back now receiver again. I don't think that's necessarily the case, but what did that tell you? The fact that he was moved back at least temporarily to me, that tells me they don't, they're trying anything because they trust no one. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's – I mean, I said they would definitely not do it, especially because how much Miles has been playing on DB. I was 100% wrong. Shocking – not that shocking. It happens all the time. Um, but that, I, that's, I really, not a, that's not a that's not a hot <laughs> take, though. Like, they, I wouldn't beat no, myself up over no. too bad over that. It's just like, who the hell can they try at this point is the vibe I got. I mean, I saw them out there. I was like, oh, my God. Like, what is going on? And it, it is very clear that they are not 
overly confident in their depth at receiver with Mingo and Sanders out. I mean, when J.J. Henry, that ball was going towards him, I had to be like, who the hell is that guy? Like, just like you did. And then I saw they said incomplete to Henry. I'm like, oh, I know him, but I did not expect to see him playing in this game. Uh, But credit to D-Nix for getting a guy that has not played a snap of offense ready to just be able to be contributing in a football game as big as this one when he's switching positions in one week. I mean, that's not easy to do, and that's why it doesn't happen very often. You don't just move a guy a position for one week, and they clearly had to because they don't love what's going on in the receiver room, but good on D-Nix for getting him ready and Levy and all them because that's not easy. And he didn't play a whole lot, I don't think, but he was out there, and that's honestly crazy to me. But here we are. Yeah, there is, and it's there's clearly no. I don't mean to say there's no rhyme or reason in it to suggest incompetence, but they are just trying everything. Because in this game, what was weird was you saw a decent bit of Jaden Jackson, but no Dennis. I'm not even sure if Dennis played. And we talked about on Thursday about I think the way you described it was: look, there's just kids that have the ability and sometimes don't want it. That's how we described Jaden Jackson. I'm not yeah. ready to crown Jaden Jackson to arrived. He made a nice catch over the middle. I'm just speaking more towards to how they're trying to plug this personnel. It seems like they're just trying anything because, you know, a week after you saw Dennis catch a nice touchdown down the sideline, you don't see a whole lot of him. You see Jaden. They're just seems like they're just trying to throw anything on the wall and see if it sticks. There's a bit of Plumley in there as well. There's a lot of just random stuff. Yeah, uh, Jaden and Dennis are both guys who have the talent that just clearly haven't put it all together, whether that's from a football standpoint or just a personal standpoint. Dennis must have either been in trouble or hurt. I was surprised by that. Yeah, I was surprised by it as well, especially since he was kind of being plugged in there as that third or fourth guy. But I I don't know what's going on with that room, um, why these guys aren't stepping up, why they aren't playing, but – you kind of just trust the coaches. The guys are out there, out there for a reason. And Jaden has all the talent in the world. So I'm not surprised they tried to throw one in there and be like, let's see if he shows up. And he kind of did there for a little bit. I know he only had one catch, but he he can be a pain to deal with for a DB. Uh, but they're going to have to figure it out quickly. And I really liked what they did with Plumlee, what they did with Drummond. LSU could not set the edge, and they, they saw that pretty clearly. And those jet sweeps really, really worked. And that's probably – Plumley's best asset is he's basically a speed back too. So you want to go him sideline to sideline where you can just outrun people and get a few yards for you. So that was good um, adjustment there by the coaches. Absolutely. And we talked about maybe seeing a little bit more of Casey Kelly and he's in there on the touchdown. He certainly played more snaps. Uh, didn't end up with like the stat sheet kind of volume target um, type of deal where they're clearly not going back to the uh, to the tight end as much as they were a year ago, but they, it was a lot of mixing in. I mean, I'll just go through Drummond clearly had eight catches, but then you're talking Paris two. I mean, hell corral had one battle one Jackson, one Pearson one. They're just trying to hit as much as they can. I guess I think Casey Kelly had two Jacob Pearson had two. So on down the line, you get my point. There's trying anything that works. I know. I feel like I bring this up every week to some degree, but some of this does some of this doesn't it speak to the, the schematic, excellence of Kiffin and Lebby because another aspect of this beyond just throwing everything at the wall and hoping something sticks at receiver you brought up the offensive line a second ago and that's probably something I should have hit on um, earlier when we were talking about the running uh, aspect of it to where Ole Miss ends up with what how many rushing yards in this game I want to make sure I have this correctly 204 no that's receiving Uh, I can't read here we go 266 they ran it 50 times Uh, I'm sure there was a sack or two in there so probably around 48 
40, 47, 48 times. Well, you get Caleb Warren back. Ben Brown is hurt. He doesn't play in this game. So you start out with Caleb Warren back at guard. And then I can't tell if he got hurt. I don't think he did. I think he was maybe playing. This is just a guess. I think he was maybe playing a week before he was ready because we always heard the end of October. And then all of a sudden he's starting on October 23rd, pretty quickly after what was rumored to be a fairly significant injury. And after two or three drives, I think it was the third drive where Ole Miss gets the field goal. They take him out. They put Umana at guard and Bryce Ramsey at center. So Ole Miss is running the ball pretty successfully with broker, Rhodes, Ramsey at center, Umana, and James on the other side, and they didn't really miss a beat. And they did that no. for about three drives. And then Warren came back in the second half at some point, and they moved him back. But when he moved back, they had some said Melton in there as well. So there, you don't really want to have clearly that much reshuffling on the defensive off the offensive line. But did anyone notice? Because I didn't even notice Caleb Warren went out for a large portion of that game until I watched the game the second time. Like at, that, to me, that's pretty impressive that you have that kind of shuffling going on, and no one seemed to notice in the offense. Clearly, didn't miss a beat. What were your thoughts on kind of how they patched that together? Uh, it that's a lot to deal with. In and yes. out. I mean, guys are moving positions, and it's something that you look at when you're game planning every week. You kind of go through and you're like, all right, who's our five this week? And they'll be like, all right, we got this one, this one, this one, this and this one. And usually, and hopefully, that never changes. But when it does, you always have a, a backup plan that there's a Thursday meeting where, like, all right, if he goes down, who's in? And if he goes down, who's in? And that's easier to do for receiver and running back and all that kind of stuff because it's just one guy. But when it's a unit like the offensive line, you have to kind of have a plan for, okay, if this goes down, if this guy goes down, how are we going to shuffle it differently? Because we're not just going to put in the second left guard if we're not confident that that helps the offensive line play better. So clearly they tried to get Warren to play and he's just back too early. And the game plan was, okay, if he goes down, we're shuffling it this way. So there's no confusion or uh, panicking on the offensive staff wise. So you just know exactly what you're going to do. And then you kind of move it from there. You know, if it's working, you keep with it. Maybe you sub in a few times like Melton. But uh, that's kind of how that process probably worked out in the room. And I think they did a hell of a job doing it. Because that's – that LSU defensive line is not an untalented group. They are, have some really good players on it. And they basically kicked their ass for four quarters. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you talk about the talent of the LSU offensive or the defensive line. They were getting to Ole Miss early before they kind of had to shuffle around a little bit. That was, along with penalties, something that disrupted the first couple of drives. That, that was something I had written down pretty early in the game was, holy shit, LSU is really kind of having their way up front. Ole Miss seemed to manage that pretty well. But the fact that they're able to run the ball for as many chunk yardages as they're able to do with the shuffling of an offensive line, and it's not always good sometimes, it's just really impressive to me. You talk about – you mentioned something on the defensive side of the ball earlier when you talk about, like, they're not forming depth. You either have it or you don't. Is there any value to said Melton and Jordan Rhodes while they were probably already, quote, unquote, ready, like the coaching staff maybe would have trusted them game one had shit hit the fan? But the fact that they're getting more snaps and now you feel like you have seven and a half, eight guys that at least can play, like, is there value to that? Those guys that you probably already trusted but hadn't done it yet and hoped they wouldn't have to play much are having to play a ton and seemingly get a little more confident. I mean, said Melton, you could throw in there too along with Rhodes. That just seems – there has to be some value in that because 
You hope to get Ben Brown back at some point. I'm guessing you hope to have Caleb Warren back and having those two guys having, you know, a month's worth of SEC games of experience can't count, has to count for something. Yeah, it definitely does. Um, the, the fortunate thing is we haven't had to deal with this on the tackles yet. Yes, they, that is huge. hope not. Um, because you can kind of survive with suboptimal guard play in the SEC. You want your center and your tackles to be stalwarts and always there and playing the way they have, which has been pretty well this year, I would say, except for against Bama. But that's how that goes sometimes. Um, but having guys that you can shuffle in at multiple positions, center guard and guard is huge just for depth wise and just for the cohesiveness of what they want to do on offense, because it's not it sounds easy to just go from left guard to right guard or from right guard to center, but your, your responsibilities are completely different. And if you don't have the guys with the intelligence to do it and do it consistently, it can be a huge problem, but they have managed that situation about as perfectly as you could throughout this season so far. And credit to Amana for going back and forth, back and forth based on when yeah. they felt like they could play Warren. That doesn't seem like something that's easy to do. The one question I want to throw out with you about the offensive line was like, so just say they're out without Warren and Brown for a game. I'm not saying that's going to happen. Just throwing it out there. Take those two out of the equation. You mentioned getting by with the average uh, guard play. When Ole Miss was playing the way they were playing with Warren out of the game and, of course, Ben Brown not being available, I was sitting there thinking, if they have one more injury, whether it's on the interior or the exterior, who's next? And I'll just throw a couple of names at you. I mean, Reese McIntyre is there. Um Carter Colquitt is at least a dude. I've heard his name a couple of times. Tobias Braun, like if you, Eli Acker, if you had to take a guess, had it gotten beyond that, is there someone else? Is there someone else that comes to mind immediately that they quote unquote could play if they had to, or were they kind of an injury away from being screwed totally? Yeah. I mean, I would, I would probably lean towards the latter because I mean, Acker maybe, but I haven't gotten a feel for his kind of development when it was pretty promising early and you haven't really seen him at all. Um, McIntyre, Colquitt, they play football for Ole Miss. Um, and then I don't really know who else it would be. <laughs> what a, so when Hamilton Hall is at least a name I'd heard for a while, what is, is he's on the team still? He is. He's technically still on the team. And I confused him for Jalen Cunningham multiple times but <laughs> hamilton hall is still out there technically yeah i mean they're not gonna go to him I okay that's all i need i think i think they're in trouble they, they would be in trouble basically is what i'm trying to say <laughs> yes so the game really turns old miss gets a stop coming right out of halftime what pissed me off is it's much harder to watch these games on replay when it's not an sec game because the espn's credit watch espn is a hell of a lot easier to go find a replay with that janky link i sent you that i was re-watching it on cut out two of Ole Miss's more important defensive stops. So uh, maybe don't put in your YouTube headline full game recap if it's not the full game. Uh, so thanks to whoever that guy was. So they get the stop. I don't remember what happened, but it's a three and out uh, immediately after halftime. So they go – LSU, I think, he didn't even have positive yardage. You had a Tyron Davis-Price run. He had a run for four yards, and then Chance Campbell has the big sack where he – the guy fumbles the ball out of bounds. And then Ole Miss goes right down the field – and scores a touchdown where you go uh, perish over the middle for 34 yards, uh, perish Snoop run. It, it's a heavy dose of Snoop Connor basically. And then I can't, I think Parrish ended up finishing it off where they ran it down 
uh, LSU's throat. I think the only pass on the entire drive was the one to start the drive. Henry Paris gets it down the LSU 32, and they beat them over the head with Snoop. At that point, it's 24 to 7. And I don't know about you watching the game. It felt over to me at that point. Maybe if LSU gets an explosive play immediately on the next drive, but with the way the defense was playing, that sequence three minutes before half and three minutes after half won the game for Ole Miss, in my opinion. Because you get up 10-7, stop, go down 10, another stop, and all of a sudden it's 24-7, and LSU has basically had two miscues on offense. That was huge to me. Right, and that was the whole story was if Ole Miss can pounce on him a little bit, what's that team going to respond like? And with the exception of Demon Clark, who is out, he's a hell of a football player. He had 20 tackles for them. Um, Whoa, I didn't he, notice that. He had 20 tackles, and he made the play against Snoop. And I, I, I called him kind of a stat pusher. That's not true. This, that guy is a stud. He was the only one that was consistently playing hard for that LSU team, even when they were down. He, he is a hell of a football player. But back to the point, yes, when they scored, really, honestly, when they stopped him to open the half, I was like, they they don't have an adjustment, and they haven't made an adjustment, and I don't think they are going to. I think this game is over. We, they didn't almost didn't even have to score the next time. It was just the way that game was going, the way the LSU starts fast and then fades. It was just kind of a – they went three and out right there, and Campbell just threw Max Johnson in the sideline. <clears throat> that's, that's when that game was over, and it just kind of played out exactly how I thought it was. And they're lucky that Clark got that fumble, that – awesome that really impressive play for snoop uh because it could have been even worse and it could have gone downhill very quickly and they kind of put baby nussmeyer in there and he looked okay but it was basically over after that stop to open the half yeah it really was and to your point about it not being as close as 31 17 this game should have finished 38 10 or 38 17 at worst like this was this was an ass kicking it was not 31 17 but that's just kind of the way it happens sometimes Kind of the one of the last things I want to get to, particularly on the defensive side of the ball, was the the real difference here beyond the run game was Ole Miss got pressure on Max Johnson. And I guess you could count Nussmeyer towards the end, but you know, Johnson played most of the game. Ole yep. Miss registers five sacks. You had back-to-back possessions where Cedric Johnson, because Ole Miss was up 24-7, got another stop and didn't do anything with it. That was the fourth and two punt from midfield. And, you know, it proves prophetic for Kiffin. I think Ole Miss gave up a first down, but Cedric Johnson makes a hell of a play off the edge. Like the angle, the way he was able to get around the tackle and stick his hand in there and get the strip. And then I I think Jake Springer, because he's always around the football, recovers it. That was huge. And then you see it on the next drive. Sam Williams, Cedric Johnson, it seemed like they had to – I'd be interested to see the snap counts on Monday – but it seemed like there was more of a rotation. They had they got to play a few more guys, and they didn't have to play John, uh, really any of their linemen as many snaps as they always did. What did you think of how they played? Because I thought that was one, particularly the two edge guys, one of their best games, maybe not if their best. Sam Williams seems to be kind of figuring it out. Maybe it's happening a little late, but he really seems to be figuring it out, not only in the pass rushing phase, but you saw some run improvement from him as well. What did you think of those two? Uh, they, they played in a really, really good game. And it's kind of one of those games where you know who you're going up against and you just have to do what you do and you're, you're going to be successful. You don't have to do anything crazy or different. And Cedric, it's great to see him play that way because they know how talented he is and he hadn't had his best year by any means. But when it comes to pass rushing, he, he can be a serious problem. And 
we said earlier in the podcast, and I say it all the time, when Sam Williams plays an inferior offensive lineman, he will dominate them. And the LSU offensive line, they had a great game last week, and they kind of regressed to the mean of what they were this week. And pass pro for them was really bad. I mean, uh, you can see from the CBS angle, but when Max Johnson threw that that dime on the first drive, Sam Williams was supposed to be blocked by three people. And he destroys Max Johnson and then the center right, left guard and left tackle are just turning around looking at him. And so it was the, the Ole Miss off defensive line played great. They played a lot of guys. Tavius Robinson got in there a little bit and made some plays, but I think it was definitely a little bit more that this LSU offensive line regressed to what they've been the whole season, which was pretty poor, but you still have to go out there and play and do it. And they did it. They did it pretty handily. How much of a confidence boost do you think that is? Because that's back-to-back weeks where they played offensive lines that aren't good per se, but yeah. you still have to play better. Like you know what I mean? Like they they oh, that offensive line even being bad if Ole Miss hadn't played well still could have kind of gashed them. And we've already talked about the other factors that kind of you know, go into it. I mean, Mark Robinson leads the team in tackles for a second straight game. Whatever's happened since Springer has gone back has allowed him to just kind of play like a madman and be a lot more aggressive. But kind of sticking with the defensive line. It, how how real is the confidence building aspect of it going against going into a tough road game against Auburn that is a much better offensive line? Like how much stock would you put into something like that, or is it simply just a product of playing two offensive lines that are terrible? No, I mean there's definitely a, an aspect to both. Um, I mean you have to take advantage of your mismatches if you have them, and Ole Miss defensively hasn't had a lot of those in the past, so it's definitely a confidence builder to know that they can do it when they put it all together. But next, next week will be much more of a challenge because you'll have a, a better team, a better offensive line, not a great one by any means, but definitely a physical one. Um, and they run kind of just a different scheme, really, and a quarterback that can move around. So you're going to have to deal with him as well. So I think the confidence is real. I think the fact they play two bad offensive lines is real. But uh, I think it's definitely good going forward for them to know that they can do it and they see it kind of come to fruition. Really, that's all I had as far as, like, the game itself was concerned. The game was over after that point. Ole Miss salts it away, despite the little small snoop hiccup at the end. But as we kind of look at this big picture, I'd like to get to slightly some of the LSU stuff because my girlfriend's dad's a big LSU guy, and I texted him last night, and it was just like, I don't think they quit. I just think they sucked. I think Ole Miss was better than LSU, right? Like, the offensive line stinks. All of LSU's problems seem to rear their – ugly head past the scripted plays at the beginning. What did you think of the effort level? And I'm just interested on the whole lame duck staff coaching out the rest of the year aspect, because I don't think they quit per se, but it was a little flat after that opening job. What did you just think of the effort level versus them just stinking? Yeah. I I don't like to say that teams quit because it's just not fair to the whole 11 that are out there because I brought Mon Clark a million times because he stood out so much. Like he didn't quit, but it doesn't mean that some of the guys around him weren't exactly all Throw in on what, what was going on. But I think it's just more of a. I, I hated this decision for LSU to have him stay as the interim. I know why they did it. They did it because they were like, "You're going to get your 17 million, but we don't have anyone on this staff, thanks to you, that we trust to to kind of put it together and be an interim coach. So it's going to be you and." It's just not fair. It's not not fair to the players, but it's a shitty place to be in. It's just a shitty situation for them. And I feel bad for the players at LSU who've 
come here, especially like seniors, they're like, God, we have to deal with this for the rest of the year. And they might only have one more win on their schedule, which That's is ULM, UNM, by the way. But don't got, discount Rich Rod. <laughs> I will discount that. They will not be winning that game. Um, but they've actually been really good this year. Good for Rich Rod. They, they've actually played much higher than they were expected because their win total was one and a half. I think they have four wins now. One outright uh, and 32-point dog. Yeah, it was juiced one and a half, by the way. Juiced to the under. <laughs> it was juiced <laughs> to the under. Um, yeah, but it's a tough deal. And the LSU fans, like, that's, like, the worst show, showing to a, a road game I've seen in a long time, maybe ever, from, from that group. It's the one that's, like, Oxford. Um, they, they didn't travel like they usually do. And there's definitely going to be a weird sentiment with that crew going forward. And the whole conversation now for, for them and – LSU fans that I've seen and listened to some of the post-game stuff is all about the coach. You know, who's the coach could it be? They don't even care about the games anymore. So if people around you aren't caring about the games, you can kind of feel that. And then, like, how do you expect the players to go out there with a coach who isn't – probably just isn't that locked in, all of them. And it's not it's not really their fault. That's just the, the situation. So Which I underscores the shittiness for the players. When we talk about it being a shitty situation for them, that's that's what sucks. Yes, exactly. And the whole interim Ed deal was real, but it was real when he had an opportunity to go prove that he could be the coach. Now he does it. So there's no – and they don't care. I mean, and that's not – it's not really Scott Woodward's fault. I don't he, – he's done this before. I didn't realize it with Tyron Willingham at Washington. So he understands what's going on. And this – Woodward's life has literally – his professional life has – culminated to him making this LSU football hire. So he's going to do it. He's not going to care what this season looks like. But that's crap for the fans and for the players. And that's just kind of the reality that they're in right now. So it's unfortunate. Before we go big picture, and I think that's a great way to put it, talk about Scott Woodward just building it up for that. But before we go big picture, they probably need to have an obligatory Matt Corral segment. You know, his numbers aren't flashy in this game. I thought Giffen made an interesting note after the game where he said, I think he said something to Crowell, like, hey, you know, we didn't do a good good job getting guys open because Crowell finishes 18 at 23 for 185 and a score. Uh, he ran the ball a light 12 times for a score. Uh, but yeah, why did you think? Times. Yeah, he ended up running the ball 12 times. Now, in terms of it being designed, I am by far, I am not educated enough for this to be an official stat, but it seemed like there were about six that he had a lot of option run on and three that were a scramble one sack ish. If I'm not mistaken, it was about five to six called runs. I think somewhere in that neighborhood, I think it ended up at 12. I think that's slightly skewed uh, just yeah. from these between the scrambling, but yeah, he ends up with 12 runs, which is kind of strange. I mean, it's only 24 yards, which probably speaks to the design factor of it, but what did, how did you think he played? Because it's weird and the whole Heisman thing around him is bizarre. I fired off some smart-ass tweet about when Corral fumbled the snap, what that did to Caleb Williams' Heisman chances as Caleb Williams barely avoided losing to a 1-5 Kansas team. Like, <laughs> But I, it, I think I tagged ESPN's Get Up account. But in, I was being somewhat tongue-in-cheek, tongue but five minutes after that, CBS broadcast puts up a Heisman like tracker thing, and Caleb Williams is the second dude on there. Like, and so I don't mean to turn this into a rant, but I think we can get to that in a second, but that's dumb to me 
But Corral doesn't have a great numbers games, and I still feel like he was about as good as possible since the one throw to Drummond that he missed early in the game. And he's not healthy, and no one noticed. And I think that's probably indicative of anything of just how good he is, considering what he's working with. Yeah, nothing's nothing's changed from how Matt Corral should be viewed by anybody because they had a game plan where they needed to run the football to beat the crap out of a, a decent LSU team, and they did it. Just because I, it's just insane. The the Caleb Williams thing is crazy. Matt Corral played really. He, Matt played well. Thing. It's the dumbest thing ever. And Matt played well. He he was a little shaky early. So was the whole team. And then once he got settled, 18 for 23 for not that many yards with a running touchdown and a throwing touchdown, there, there's teams that would die for that. And he made some pretty difficult over-the-middle throws. He, I don't know if he's the front runner, but th- this whole Heisman thing, the NBA MVP, the NFL MVP, it's become this just load of bullshit for tv to put on all day long on espn they don't even really i don't even think they even think or care about their own opinions on it it's just something to put up there and tweet about and get interaction and they Williams have, has two starts two and then he pl- almost got benched for rattler against kansas on exactly. the road, and we're still talking about him and he's a hell of a quarterback but we're and only talking least, about it because he wears so had the, yeah i mean Lee Corso had the most competent statement he's had in two years on national television when he said, yeah, he's going to set him up to be the Heisman winner next year, <laughs> but he's not going to be doing it this year. I was like, God damn Lee. I love to see it. You got, got, got something going there. Um, it, I, it's just so disingenuous to how cool the Heisman is the way it's run now. It's just, I mean, CJ Stroud, like they've definitely found something up there at Ohio state. And if he comes out and ends up winning it, and they go 11 and one the playoffs, you're not going to see me bat an eye. I'd be like, damn, you know, that sucks. But he, they're playing really well. I get that. The Kenny Pickett kid, he's, he's good. playing very well. He's a good football player. And I, I get it. Um, you can count Desmond Ritter out. That's over. And then Bryce Young, though Bama looks mortal, the kid's a really good football player. And he's not as good as Matt Corral, but he's really good. And I get why he's getting the hype. But they're just. There's this weird thing, and maybe I'm close to it, so I don't notice it, but it feels like no one wants to give Matt credit. Yes, no, you're exactly right. Anywhere, anywhere. And I just don't totally get it. Seems six and one. I mean, if they beat Auburn and Matt has another performance like Tennessee, it won't be over, but it should be a lot closer to over than it actually is. And if we, if it comes down and you know, I think he's going to get invited to New York, which is a really an honor in itself. But if it gets down to all of this and Ole Miss goes 10 and 2 or 11 and 1, and Bryce Young and CJ Stroud, and they continue the way they're playing, and they end up one of those guys ends up winning it instead of Matt, it will feel it would take a lot of the Heisman. Like, why do anyone care about this away from me? Because not because he's an Ole Miss quarterback, but because this guy's clearly the best quarterback in the country. It is just so evident. And what he's working with compared to what Bryce Young and CJ are working with is just not even close. I mean, CJ has the best uh, receiver group in the country. So he's just flicking it out to them all day, you know, could hand it off to Trevion Williams, who might be the best running back in the country. And Matt Corral has. Uh, his starting tight ends hurt, his offensive line is in shambles, and his two best receivers are out, and he just casually leads a team 
to a blowout win at home again. And it's just the whole thing. I'm it's honestly getting a little annoying to talk about it because I, it's going to end up how I think it is. And I don't think he's going to win. And it's going to be so dumb because he's clearly the best player in the country. I think you touched on all sides of this and I think you're exactly right. But the way this comes together is so before I go full on old Miss conspiracy, but I do look, I'd be lying if I thought there's not something to the, to the idea that the helmet he wears versus a Caleb Williams who has two starts under his belt and was down multiple scores to Kansas. And I didn't have a touchdown at halftime. The difference between those two, there is something to the fact of the logo that they wear, you know, on their Jersey and the side of their helmet every week, but there is some aspect of it, of the one gigantic marquee game Ole Miss has had this year. Corral did not shine. He wasn't bad and it wasn't his fault. And he didn't do anything to cost his team the game or play to the detriment of his team against Alabama. Ole Miss just got absolutely throttled up front and there was nothing they could do. And I actually thought Corral played quite well in that game. But when you're down that many points, it doesn't really matter. And then the Arkansas game was one of his best performances, but it's at an 11 a.m. against a loaded slate the rest of the day. And then you go to Tennessee And yes, he played incredibly well, but it's not in the day and age of Patrick Mahomes and off-plane passes and flicking the ball around. It was a lot more running stuff to where he did exactly what the team needed him to do, but it wasn't by any means. It was not flashy. Hell, he ran the ball 30 times. Yeah. And then you play this LSU team. Again, it's a marquee-ish game because it is the CBS game, but half the SEC is on a bye. It's the crappiest slate of the year. I think there's some of that to it, but to your I just dropped my mic. That ruined a great soundbite, but that's okay. To your point, that's going to come. When he plays, if he plays the way he's been playing against Auburn and just say Ole Miss wins, and then he does it two weeks later against AM, I think a lot of this sleeping on Matt Corral argument will be put to bed. Does that mean he's gonna win the thing? I don't know. I don't necessarily means that I don't think that means it'll be put to bed, but his opportunity to have his quote-unquote Heisman moments are going to come in November or on Halloween night or whatever, October 30th point being. It might be coming the later in the season because of the way the schedule has worked out. I do think there's some they don't want to give it to Crosby to it, but I do think this is coming. If he has marquee performances in the two important games are left on the schedule, I do think the conversation will change dramatically. Because if a and say Ole Miss wins next week and he plays well and then you beat the shit out of Liberty – whatever people want to make of the freeze thing, that game against A&M will be the game of that week. I don't even know what the schedule is, but I can pretty much say that with confidence. So in my opinion, it's coming, but Ole Miss needs to get healthy. They need to continue to win and he needs to continue to play well. Yeah. I mean, all that's correct. It, it, it always ends up kind of working itself out. There hasn't been too many like really close Heisman races that I can remember recently, except for maybe McCaffrey and Henry to an extent. Yeah. That I can even remember. So it'll work itself out. But, yeah, he's definitely been knocked from a – they had the one big game and Ole Miss got blown out. And now I think the – Which was not his fault. No, and the talking heads see that and are like, oh, well, that's not the Heisman moment. You know, like Herbstreit was like, no one's had a Heisman moment yet. I'm like, well, it's halfway through the season, Kirk. Like, what do you you expect? Like, no no one's won it yet because it's halfway through the season. I love Herbstreit. Also – to your, add on to your point, Chase pointed this out last week, and it's something I noticed but didn't care enough to make a note of. You know how Herbstreit does the 10 performers on Twitter? Yeah. 
that did not include Matt Corral after Tennessee. And I, that to me is just because no one watched that game, unfortunately. But like Herbstreit, yeah. I respect him. I respect his football opinions. But that's clearly an oversight, which is kind of what we're talking about. Yeah, no, and that, that's a good point. I, I did not know that. Uh, that's pretty bad on him. But and that's like an impossible list to make every week. So I'm not right. going to knock him too much on something like that. It's kind of meaningless. But it'll work itself out. He'll either – they'll pull through – um, some of these games and he'll play really well. They won't. And, you know, the smart people in this conversation, Vegas, smarter than everybody, he's still – he basically the front runner and the leader. Him and Bryce Young are, you know, just a few juice points away from being basically the same odds. So that, to an extent, matters more than a lot does. I know there's like a million Heisman voters. Every mom and dad who writes for something gets to vote for the Heisman, which is ridiculous. Um, that is true because there's some dudes that you know some dudes who love to put it in their bio and i'm like this guy has a vote yeah like that's insane um that that's the way it works for an award that is maybe the most recognizable in sports it's supposed to be yeah for an individual award um so that they do it stupid but like i've said a few times he'll have his chance to to prove it which is crazy but that is what it is Agree. Let's wrap this thing up with the big picture conversation because it was interesting. And I think to credit Neil McCready as McCready, sorry, five years knowing him, I still apparently say that wrong. He wrote a column after the two lane game or Ole Miss's bye week, whatever it was going into Alabama. There's like, look, Ole Miss has a chance to have a pretty special October here. Like this could be pretty memorable. They got pancaked against Alabama. They weren't up to it. The offensive line got dominated. Ironically enough, the fully healthy version of them got dominated. And then it became quickly, they win a track meet against Arkansas. They make one stop when they had to. They get real banged up in that game. They survive against Tennessee, and the narrative becomes, okay, let's see how they can survive this month with one more loss, or my God, if they can make it through all the way, then you're really talking about it. Now you're here. They survived against Tennessee. They survived against LSU. And now you're one win away against Auburn from the conversation seriously changing to, is this team going to finish 11 and one? Because if you, if they do go on the road and they win next week, and I don't, I don't know what I think about their chances. My, the way the defense played and the fact that they're fully healthy with Jake Springer has changed my opinion on this game greatly. And I think the Vegas line reflects it. I saw the early line was Auburn minus one. That feels right on par with what I was thinking to where I thought Ole Miss might be five, six point underdogs, honest to God, going into that game a month ago. But you're now one win away. If they can survive this last week of October, you're going to get a quote unquote built-in bye week and please spare me the Malik Willis Hugh Freeze is going to come in here and win they don't have the athletes they don't have the players you're going to have a chance to rest some dudes and then you have this A&M game where that's kind of not it but that's that's the game of all games of Ole Miss's season and the conversation if they win next week for 11 and one becomes real I don't know your thoughts on that do you think that's kind of on plane but I, I, I I'm shocked that we're here but at the same time, it now feels actually real to start the discussion of if they win next week, I think they could run the table, which is crazy to think about. It, it is pretty crazy. And it was kind of the best case scenario when you were looking at it preseason, like, okay, if Corral's really Corral, like it's not ungodly to think that they could go 10 and two. But now 
if you beat Auburn next week, which I think will be an incredibly difficult game, especially kind of the way they've played on the road so far. Night game now, six, too. The, the, the conversation seriously becomes, are, is this team going to at least build themselves a case for attempting yes. to get into this playoff? I don't – that seems like a stretch to me. Uh, I don't know because you, you're going to have to have Bama lose another game um, because I just don't think – three SEC teams are going to get in. I don't see Georgia losing to anybody, maybe for the rest of the season, including the playoff. But that's what it comes down to. You would need Georgia yeah. to annihilate Alabama in that title game. The, exactly. Your, your, your best chance for Ole Miss to go to the playoff is for Bama actually not to lose ever again and then go get their ass kicked by Georgia. And then it's a two-loss Bama versus a one-loss Ole Miss. And honestly, I mean – who knows what they do in that situation? Do they penalize Bama for having to play another game? You know, the head-to-head -head goes to Bama on a pretty significant margin. But if you're all Miss and that conversation's even being had, you're pretty happy. Yeah, you might feel a little, little jaded if you don't get in, but 11-1, and one, you have to beat Auburn. And then that's when the conversation becomes real. And it, The it fact that they're there, real. the fact that it's a conversation is insane. Yes, exactly. And, I mean – it really is tough the way college football is these days because the playoff is everything because nothing sounds less anticlimactic than Ole Miss going to the Sugar Bowl and the way it's freaking going. I mean, it could be it gets Oklahoma State again or somebody like that. I mean, right. this, if this team goes 11-1, and one, goes to the Sugar Bowl instead of the playoff, has to play Oklahoma State again, it, that would just suck. From a respect, literally, it would suck so much. And I mean, I would go because I love New Orleans. It'd be a ton of fun, but it'd be like, really? Or if you had to play Cincinnati, if they don't get in, because the, the teams that aren't going to get in the playoff, if you're looking like through the top 10, not a lot of inspiring matchups. What Penn State, Iowa, Michigan State, like it just, it, it would be tough. But I think regardless of all of that, in my personal opinion on it, it, it would, it, the conversation is more exciting than the outcome for Ole Miss fans. Yeah, right. But the fact that they're in conversation in year two is really remarkable. I mean, this – I hate to continue to say this, and I've made this point a couple of times, but just say they do that, and they have a shot to really kind of cement their case for an 11-1 finish. This team is not that good. The fact that this team, if you look no. at the roster in August, that they finish 11-1 in the SEC West is bonkers. Playoff or not, it's just wild that they're in this position. And credit to them because they survived two weeks shorthanded against a hostile environment. I mean, how they had a borderline ride on the field. And I didn't really buy into LSU might be the most dangerous team in the country type of deal. But they did survive against a talented LSU team. And now you have to pass one more test and you pretty much get two weeks to prepare for kind of punching your ticket at 11 and one barring some weird shit in the, uh, in the egg bowl. And I just think it's, it's, it's incredible that they're at this point. And next week talk about surviving the month of October. Doesn't this feel like the last week they need to survive? Cause they will get Sanders back at some point. That seems like a thing where he was close to ready to go, but they yeah. held him out. Maybe he plays next week. I'm not sure, but if you get through next week and, you know, I don't know Ben Brown's deal. Maybe you get him back a little bit healthier, Caleb Warren. They don't have to play four quarters of football against Liberty. You're talking about a team with three games remaining that's going to be as close to fully healthy as they've been all year, barring something happening in the Auburn game, right? So sure. this feels like going into Auburn, one, a tremendous opportunity, two, and a gigantic game for a program in year two. 
And three, kind of the last test of survival. Is that how you view it? Give me like your 10,000-foot outlook on this game going into Auburn because Auburn's been a lot better than I thought. Credit to them. Yeah, no, they actually – they have been much better than I thought they were going to be. And I, we always said on here that that game was far from a guarantee as a win, and I don't think that's ever been more true. Uh, it's going to be a tough game. Bo Nix is playing the best he's played since he's been at Auburn, and I've been pretty critical on him. That benching um, reinvigorated him. Absolutely, and that's a really a credit to him for handling that like a pro where some kids would just fold, um, i.e. the kid at Oklahoma. I was about to say, Rattler just entered the portal upon the Tuesday practice. <laughs> Yeah, I almost feel bad for Rattler because everyone, everyone like in sports media is just killing this kid. But then you just go back and watch those videos of, of him in high school and hear some of the stories and never mind. Doesn't matter. You, know, you mentioned kids, that. So I didn't watch the high school deal. You know, we got a couple angry tweets. I don't know if you saw that where it was like, don't ever bring up Rattler Ole Miss again. I've seen the QB documentary, which I hadn't seen. Solid. Seems very unlikable. Yeah. Uh, but but back to Auburn. We get off of Rattler. Back to Auburn. Um. I mean, it's it's an incredibly important game, as they all are. But I really do think that you know, talk about year two being in this position. You're not in this position because they've done such an amazing job in year two. You're in this position because you have number two on your team. Corral is just amazing, and every week I'll say it. And I'll say it next week and the week after if they lose. Just appreciate how good he is and be have fun watching him because you don't get one of these guys very often and LSU got one in Burrow and it was pretty amazing it, it really changed the way football I mean Tua and Alabama they've always been great but it changed the game when you've got a guy like that and I can only imagine what Auburn fans I mean Cam Newton is a god there and having him and I don't know if Corral is necessarily on the level of Burrow or Manziel or Newton he's kind of a different kind of player than all those guys really they're all different in their own ways but he's he's as important to this team as any of those guys were for their teams. And I think it's just really a testament to him and how good this team has been because overall they're really not that talented. And he is, he is the one making everything go for him. Could not agree more. And the last thing I'll add to that is the fact that I've written about this at numerous points throughout the last five, six weeks is Ole Miss is going to play a game on the night before Halloween in year two under Lane Kiffin that matters and there's going to be a lot of local and national eyeballs on that game because it matters i mean hell neil made this point as we were talking it out loud on the post game show last night and granted this was when tennessee was up 14 to 7 and it was like hey like they're probably not going to lose but if alabama had lost last night to tennessee that Ole Miss Auburn game becomes the game of the year in college football, and it's not yeah. close. Those are two of the only teams left that control their only de their destiny in the SEC West. And the fact that Ole Miss is that close and in the conversation is kind of the point I'm making. The fact that what two years ago, what it, we we're mid October two years ago. I don't remember what the game was, but Ole Miss had just gotten not killed, but went to a very average Missouri team. And thank, thank, thank you. Shout out to Facebook memories because I post articles on there or used to of kind of giving me a snapshot of where this Ole Miss football program used to be versus where they are now. But this week, two years ago, Ole Miss had just gone on the road and couldn't do anything offensively against a very average Missouri team. Granted, they had Kelly Bryant and lost by 11 points. And I was writing some sort of story about how, hey, the defense did okay. They might be a path to six wins. Now, two years later, you're six and one in late October. 
playing a game that matters. It's just remarkable to me how far this has come in such a short amount of time because, I mean, shit, if the piss and miss doesn't happen, you're having Matt Luke and Rich Rodriguez sell John Rice Plumley as the future of the program. And that's less than two years ago. And so the fact and that Matt Browse at Oregon. Exactly. Playing for Joe Moorhead, probably putting up awesome numbers in a shittier system, which would yeah. suck for all parties involved. But yeah. just the fact that you're here, I would encourage people listening to this to just kind of appreciate the ride. I have no idea what's going to happen next week, but the fact that they're in this game given the lethargy around the program and where they were headed less than two years ago is something that's kind of remarkable. So that's really the last thing I had on the old kind of the old Miss Auburn front. Let's take very quick look around the sec before we get to soccer corner. There's really only one game to talk about. Tennessee goes in and kind of did the whole Tennessee thing where they hung around against Alabama credit to them. Alabama looks vulnerable. Tennessee doesn't have the depth is very similar to the Florida game. That was yeah. a, Brutal, brutal cover for those of you out there that had 20 seasons, Tennessee plus 25 and a half. That was like a seven-point game in the fourth quarter, and it ends up 52-24. The final score was not indicative of how close that game was for the most part. But what sucks about this from a larger SEC West picture is Alabama, you normally have that game with late LSU in late October, early November, where it's like, oh, could they slip up? And now it's like, okay, they're going to kick the shit out of them. Yes. If Alabama were to lose one more time, things would get very interesting. But the problem is that's not going to happen because if I'm not mistaken, Arkansas has to come to Tuscaloosa. And that's before the Iron Bowl, that's their only shot. Like, give me yeah. the argument to Ole Miss winning the West, winning out, and Alabama losing again. It's, it's them winning, losing the Iron Bowl, right? There's nothing else. I don't right. see another path. Yeah, I think that would be it. And, um, well, that would be crazy because if all things go – how they could, that would be an Auburn would go if they end up beating Ole Miss next week. So that will be a hell of a game if that, if it comes down to that. Uh, but that's the only way I don't see Arkansas beating them. Not impossible. Bama has been making some mistakes that they don't ever make in Tennessee. They had two busted coverages early in that game that you just don't ever see from Alabama. They had a fumble. I mean, it got a little squirrely there for it did. at least two quarters. And it, it, the Grove was a little excited there when Tennessee went up 14 and seven, we were, we were back out there watching the game, but um, Heupel's still done a really good job with a roster that might even be more depleted than Ole Miss's. And he's going to do well there and he's going to be a problem. And hookers played pretty well. Um, I don't see Bama losing again. I think they're still incredibly dynamic, but they're definitely it's not inconceivable that they would lose a game. I just don't see it necessarily. Is the but, better path for Alabama to lose again, Ole Miss wins out and gets destroyed by Georgia? Or couldn't you make the argument the better path is to Ole Miss finish 11-1 and one and then Alabama get blown out by Georgia and you just would prefer the case of 11-2 and two Alabama versus 11-1 uh, and one Ole yeah, Miss? That, that seems like the better the case, honestly, as weird as that is to say. Yeah, so we mentioned a little bit. That's definitely the better case. You definitely want – I think you want – well, it just depends on what your mindset is. Do you want – I mean, Ole Miss has never been to Atlanta. So there might be people that are like, no, screw that. Like, I don't care. I want to go try to win right. the SEC. And I, I fully understand that. And I, as a – if I was a, a long, lifelong fan, I would definitely want that version. But if, you, if you're trying to get in the playoff, which is what matters the most, that may not be the best – case scenario for you. you may want Bama to win out and then go get their ass kicked by Georgia right so I don't know just the fact that we're having this conversation is bonkers 
I think that kind of sums it up. Nothing else really happened in college football. I was around and available to watch football all weekend and really learned not a whole lot of anything. So uh, I'll be around next weekend, though. So hopefully I'll learn some more on Halloween. It is now time for the fastest growing segment on American soil. It is Soccer Corner. I, I saw a tweet earlier this morning. I did inside baseball. I woke up about nine, got some coffee. And the Brentford Bees ruined my morning because they lost two to one. And it just had a tweet that said, not our day, which usually means that the ratio on such a tweet uh, from a team account is about to be pretty crappy. I don't even remember who they lost to, but uh, it's another week in the English Premier League. Uh, From what I'm told, the English Premier League is up there with the SEC and the MAIS as the toughest leagues in America. Well, give me your rundown of the toughest uh, of of the Premier League this week, because I don't even have the standings pulled up and I don't know what the hell happened. Yeah, I don't think there was a great slate on Saturday morning. I woke up and saw a few, but I was pretty tired and a little hungover. Uh, the (laughs) one the one the only one real takeaway was. Man United played Liverpool this morning and lost 5-0 at home. Oh, um, it's kind of it's kind of funny. It's kind of a very similar case to what happened with LSU and Ole Miss, where LSU is united. They have a coach as a lame duck. He's about to get fired, and they're probably the more talented team. But Liverpool is way better coached and might have the best player in the world right now. It's kind of a weird similarity to how that happened but um yeah it was an ass kicking and they're probably gonna fire that coach at some point I hope because we're too good to lose 5-0 to your biggest rival at home it's embarrassing I mean it's that it was so bad I honestly I had my laptop pulled up in the uh the biggest shithole airport in America Memphis (laughs) that place is uh, terrible go ahead finish your thought yeah and I I just it was 3-0 at halftime I just I just closed it but you want a Memphis airport story? This shot, this, Let's not, do not it. Like I don't that. care. We can we can divert for a second. I hate that place. Go ahead. You tee it yeah, off. That, that's, that's all I got for soccer. I didn't pay that much attention this week. Um, Memphis airport, I've done it so many times. It is the worst <sighs> airport in America. It is. So they now this is an, a worldwide airport issue. None of these food places are open. So None of know, them. None of them. Memphis in particular, there was one place open to eat. So I go up there, I get there a little early. I sit down, the nice waitress comes up and says, hey, we're only serving two items. We're serving a cheeseburger or a grilled chicken sandwich and there's no sides. So what do you want, a cheeseburger or a grilled chicken sandwich? That is the only place you can eat in the Memphis airport right now. That place sucks so much and I've had to deal with it for so long and the pandemic has made it even worse. I hate that place. I hate it so much. It is horrible and it probably doesn't necessarily represent the whole city of Memphis, but that place is horrible. <laughs> it's on brand. Dude, I, I'm right there with you. We've done this four times in the last couple of months because obviously that's the only way to get out of Oxford. This summer, we're coming back from uh, our buddy's wedding, and we get there, and I know exactly what place you're talking about. I just can't remember the name. It's where you walk down past the thing, and that's immediately on the corner, and then you can go to the Correct. right or a little bit left, whatever that place is called. It's the only place it's ever open. At the, the last couple of times we've been there, they've either not been serving food or one out of the four times we got in there and we're like, sweet, they're serving food. And they were like, hey, you got three options and you need to order it in the next 10 minutes because the cook's about to leave. And I'm looking at my watch. And I'm like, it's 1045 in the morning. Like, what the hell do you remember? Like, what do you mean they're about to leave? And so we order fast. And then the second time we were there, none of them were open. None of the restaurants were open. And we get pulled off the plane because of mechanical issues. So we're delayed in Memphis for five and a half hours off the plane. 
But not only are none of the restaurants open, because it's Sunday, the little grab-and-go areas are closing too, you know, where you buy the overpriced headphones or candy or whatever. That's closing. I find one open that had a beer, a Mountain Dew, and like some Chex Mix. And I was like, I'll take all three. So I got them. <laughs> and I was like, hey, like, what do people do if like, you know, all these places are closing and their flights are still not going out? And the lady was like, well, they always try to leave one place open. And don't worry, we'll be open until the last flight leaves Memphis. I was like, sweet. So I bring back the Chex Mix to MC&I, beer, Mountain Dew, whatever the hell it was. About an hour goes by. We still have three hours left in this delay. And I was like, all right, I guess I'll go back and try to get something else because I'm just trying to kill time. And guess what? That place has locked itself up and it's closed. So this lady has just lied to my face. And then I walk back and it's just turned into a lawless abyss. There's people laying down. They're trying to like ration water out of the water fountains. I'm just saying if someone had stabbed me, I'm not sure it could be considered a crime because you're talking about deserted islands, Lord of the Flies type shit. There's no food. There's no water. I think the toilets were still flushing, but that's giving them the benefit of the doubt. And I'm now stuck there for three more hours, not knowing when I'm going to get out or get a drink of water. And I'm not saying I'm a survivalist, but I felt like I was on that show. Yeah, it's not like you, there's a, a nice place to go around the airport because you're in a, you're in Memphis. And, and there's not, nowhere close by. Exactly. There's nowhere close the by. You part. can't leave the airport. That place sucks. It's such an embarrassment for I think one of my one of my pledge brothers, one of my very good friends, described Memphis in a way to me that is so mean, but so true. He said it is the most forgotten city in America. And I think that is one of the meanest things you could say about it, but it could not be more true. And the airport experience just enlightens everything about that place, at least recently. There's four Starbucks in the, in the airport and only one was open. <laughs> there's barn areas around the gates that have clearly, there's like dust on the taps. Like no one has managed that bar in years. That's why I felt comfortable shitting on it because this was a pre-pandemic issue. I get the airlines having problems and staffing shortages because of the pandemic. And that 100%. The that's not a myth. But this happened before the pandemic. This yes. is a problem before COVID. This, this, is, a, this is a years-long issue. Yes. For them. Is, they don't get any excuses because of the pandemic. This has always been that. That way make sure to put this one in the byline when you tweet it so people can see what they have to say about it because i hate that place and yes. i would do anything to buy a private jet if i had any money to just fly in oxford next time that'll motivate you to I get don't. rich so please <laughs> so. fix it memphis because you're going to have one of those situations to where there's going to be a group of people that are seven hours delayed and they're like we have to eliminate someone and we have to use them for food and yeah. you're going to have a real situation on your hands in one of those gates i'm not crying cannibalism i'm just Throwing the possibility out there. Last thing before we get out of here, just not to disappoint our soccer corner listeners, uh, Brighton, this year, West Ham is now fourth place, and Brighton is fifth. What need? I hadn't heard of these teams. Is this is this going to last? Um, I would imagine West Ham will last more than Brighton. They uh, they have a are they a good stadium. club? They're a London club. They uh, they have real history, and they've, they've done a really really good job of evaluating players and bringing in some guys um, that are really, really good. They have one of the better midfielders in England and Rice, Declan Rice, who plays for the national team. They're just really good. They're, they're, there's no fluke in them. Brighton, I think, will regress to the mean at some point. But um, I would not be surprised if West Ham finishes top six and ends up in Europe in either in the Champions League or that's top four. That might be a stretch. But they'll be in the Europa League, which is what they're in right now. They're actually a really good team. That's not that surprising. Okay, and so Tottenham, man, you 
kind of lingering back a little bit. Leicester City, is that how you say that? Leicester. Leicester. That's the yeah. that's the twenty two thousand to one odds that won it a couple of years ago and then sacked their manager a year and a half after. So they're they're now a legit club. Yeah. Oh, they're they're more than legit. They've got money backing now. They, they you can go look on their video. They just posted um, like a few weeks ago their new training facility. That you win that league, I mean that's it's a it's a invest art return on your investment that is just unlike anything else in sports. Does that and mean they, they get a new owner or does that owner just have to spend money now? How does that work? What changed for them when they won it? I think it's – they have – you can now kind of go get players that you probably weren't able to get before. And then if you do your business right, they might leave for a different club. But now you've got expensive players on your team. You sell a guy for – I mean, they sold N'Golo Conte to Chelsea. He might be the best midfielder in the world. And now you get to buy like three other really good players with the one hundred million dollar deal you sent him out for. So it kind of just snowballs on. You can get better players. You're having more success. You're playing in the Champions League and the Europa League. So you can just kind of compound those successes into becoming a really expensive team and a really good one. What you can't really do in other leagues because it's set. You know this one it's it's not set. So things can change. You know the Cowboys can't just go from a one billion dollar team to a seven billion dollar team it's just going to be what it is but these soccer teams um they're the value of the teams and the players and everything around them is year by year technically so it's different last thing i have for you as i was outlining earlier i was sitting on my couch i saw the tweet about wasn't our day when am i allowed to because a part of me thought about googling the name of the bees manager and just saying sack this bum and then inserting his name. When am I allowed to do that? You can do it with me when I tweet it, man. You okay, fire. Yeah, you do it tomorrow whenever you're ready because that's how it works there. So, it is so no thing. matter what, I know I'm supposed to be happy with the way they're playing, but I'm still allowed to do that? Yes, absolutely. Okay, sweet. This has been Soccer Corner, the fastest growing segment on American soil. Uh, you've got some resting to do, perhaps a movie to get to. I appreciate the time as always. It's been awesome to see this podcast become uh, kind of much – must consume content amongst the message board goers. I appreciate the time as always, my man. And we will talk after a badass game next week, perhaps a preview action in between, but uh, be well and rest up. Yep. Going to see doom. Thanks for everything. See you. <laughs> All right. That's our show. I appreciate Weldon's time as always uh, playing, uh, playing a little bit hurt this week. Weldon seemed worn down by the weekend. He had a big time at Ole Miss LSU, but of course always enjoy his insight and uh, really what this podcast has become, particularly on Sunday nights, I, uh, you know, I got, a, I'm not huge into like social media, whether that's positive or negative praise. I don't necessarily think it's reflective of uh, society as a whole, or really just kind of the job that uh, I say you myself is doing um, or really anyone in the media landscape. But I do appreciate the, uh, when I can kind of occasionally step back and look at uh, just how this podcast is growing and the feedback to it, I, I really, it's been kind of awesome to see this thing grow and people's interaction and, you know, the messages you get from saying it's, a, you know, a big part of their weekend or a big part of the early start of their week. And I'm just, I really appreciate it. I can't thank you guys enough for listening and making this what it has become. We've got a big week ahead. We're forging onward. Ole Miss has a gigantic game with Auburn this week, probably a large part of what has made this such a fun fall for me is just the fact that we have a lot to talk about 
Ole Miss is relevant again, and you guys are fired up and tuning in on every week. So we'll have the uh, the typical Auburn guest midweek, and I've got some other guest stuff in the works. Travis Johnson was awesome last week. I don't know how I'm going to top that, but I promise you I will try for the people. So everybody have a great start to their week, and we will catch you on Wednesday. <laughs>